Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features my conversation with an expert about his new research on American education, including Common Core. Then meet a new scholar in our coffee break. And finally, wrapping up our series to celebrate Brookings centenary with thoughts from Brookings scholars. But first, here's an exciting announcement about a new podcast from Brookings. Want to hear more from Brookings? Listen for Intersections, a new podcast where two experts discuss the angles on policy issues. I'm your host, Adriana Pita. Subscribe now on iTunes to be the first to hear new episodes. Intersections launches March 30th. Go to iTunes now and subscribe. How well are American students learning? That's the 2016 Brown Center Report on American Education by non-resident senior fellow Tom Loveless, who joins me in the studio today. Thanks for joining me, Tom. Hi, Fred. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining me again. We talked about Common Core a couple of years ago. Yep. Now, this is the uh, 15th issue of the Brown Center Report. Uh, and every year, you put together three sections. Can you tell me briefly what the three sections that make up this report are? Sure. The three sections this year, the first one is devoted to Common Core state standards. And it's looking at the impact of uh, Common Core on some classroom and school policies and activities. So what's been the impact of Common Core on what teachers and school principals do? It also looks at uh, NAEP data, which is the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and uh, attempts to answer the question, are states that are more rigorously implementing Common Core, do they look different from the states that uh, are not? So that's, that's the first section. Second section looks at advanced placement and basically hypothesizes that AP is uh, essentially a set of courses that high-achieving kids may take as juniors or seniors in high school, typically. So the question that the study poses is what I would call the pipeline hypothesis. Is there a pipeline that begins much earlier than high school, back in middle school, um, that involves tracking? differentiating curriculum for kids? Uh, and is there any relationship between uh, tracking practices and later pl- uh, outcomes in terms of AP? The third study looks at principals and their teaching, uh, their activities surrounding teacher leadership or instructional leadership. There's this idea that principals should be instructional leaders, that they should somehow try to influence the way teachers teach intervene when they think there's there are problems. And so that study uses international data to look at this question of um, principles as instructional leaders. So those, those are the three studies. Well, let's dive into them uh, one by one if we can. Uh, the first section on the Common Core State Standards, the NAEP data, two of the major uh, areas of focus are reading and math. Um, and something that you found in the report is that the dominance in fiction reading has been waning, and that's been in the media before. Can you talk about what that means in terms of your data, your study in general? Yeah. Um, Common Core, and this was a rather controversial recommendation. In, in the year 2012, actually, there was quite a uh, vigorous national debate about this recommendation. Uh, Common Core recommends that teachers de-emphasize, I would say, teach, try to achieve more parity between the amount of fiction and nonfiction that they use. For, for, the, for at least 100 years, the teaching of fiction has dominated uh, English language arts classes at the middle schools and high schools. And in the elementary grades, kids read fiction. They read stories. They read uh, 
anything but nonfiction. So the Common Core urged uh, more balance between fiction and nonfiction. And what I did was use NAEP data. NAEP, uh, in addition to being a test that's given to uh, fourth and eighth graders, it also surveys teachers. And it's asked them for a number of years how much the teachers emphasize fiction and nonfiction. So what I did is just compare those numbers and see if the superiority of fiction has been declining. And indeed it has. So at fourth grade, uh, teachers simply don't emphasize fiction the way they once did. And in terms of nonfiction, you have teachers saying that they are emphasizing more nonfiction. So the effect that the Common Core sought appears to be playing out in classrooms. But when you disaggregate that, I think you had a couple of explanations for why why there would be a decrease in fiction versus nonfiction when you look at the uh, kind of subjects taught and also the age of the kids. Yeah. Um, in terms of eighth grade, we don't uh, find the effect as large in terms of this narrowing that's going on between fiction and nonfiction. It's, it's much more evident at the fourth grade. One of the things is the fact that eighth grade is departmentalized in instruction. Kids don't go to just one teacher all day. They have an English language arts teacher. And when the Common Core recommendation was issued, advocates of Common Core said, look, we're not saying remove all the fiction from your English language arts classes. These kids are also taking science courses. They're taking history courses. So these other teachers can pick up some of the slack as far as emphasizing the teaching of nonfiction. And so in a subtle way, uh, Common Core was urging science teachers and history teachers and teachers in non-English language arts classes to have more reading. Can you talk about the, uh, the effects that you found on math instruction? Yeah, um, two different effects, one at the elementary grade, fourth grade, and then the, the other at middle school, and, and the effects are different. At the elementary grades, what I looked at was the amount of emphasis that teachers give. So this is similar to the fiction, nonfiction, except there's no alternative I could compare uh, to. But in terms of the topics surrounding uh, geometry and data analysis, which are two topics that were brought into the elementary curriculum in a formal way in the 1990s, uh, and teachers have uh, spent time on them, that's beginning to decrease now. And the Common Core uh, doesn't give as much emphasis in those early grades, kindergarten through fourth grade, to geometry and data analysis uh, as once existed. And you do see some dropping off. So, for example, in 2011, uh, 36% of fourth grade teachers said that they emphasized the teaching of geometry, for example, a great deal. That's been declining. And in 2015, it was down to 29%. So essentially what we're seeing there is uh, what the Common Core wanted, the Common Core is getting with geometry and data. At eighth grade, it's not a matter of topics where you see an effect. It's a matter of course offerings. Uh, for a long time, there's been a push to get as many kids as possible into algebra, algebra one, uh, in eighth grade. And what that meant was for a 10 to 15-year period, the percentage of kids who were taking a general math course where every, all kids are in the same math course uh, has been uh, falling. And it, it really uh, dropped consistently over the years, up again till about 2011. This is kind of the Common Core, when Common Core is beginning to take hold. 
you see it in 2011, you see it in 2013, you see it in 2015, a drop in the percentage of kids taking uh, algebra or an advanced math class and an increase in the numbers of kids taking a general eighth grade math course. So the trend reversed. You had you had that general math course enrollment declining for a long period of time, and then boom, everything changed around 2011, and that's when Common Core came in, and now you're seeing an increase in the general math. I use the state of California as an example where in 2013, uh, somewhere in the seven, around 70% of kids took uh, Algebra one as eighth graders, and in 2015, that number fell all the way down into the 40s. So a huge change there. When the state board adopted the Common Core, they said we're eliminating our universal algebra one goal. So that these are impacts that are being seen at the school level. So a very important question that you pose in the report is, are the changes in NAEP scores associated with CCSS, Common Core State Standards, implementation? Right. So what I do is I, I developed a couple of models two years ago three years ago, four years ago, some models that tried to capture Common Core implementation. And I've been tracking NAEP scores all along by sorting the states into these basically categories. Are they strong implementers of Common Core? Are they kind of medium implementers of Common Core? Or they're not even playing the Common Core game. They didn't adopt Common Core to begin with. And uh, first of all, one my first finding was all of those policy changes that we've been talking about, the, the uh, general math enrollments in eighth grade, the emphasis on data and geometry in fourth grade math, the emphasis on fiction and nonfiction, I found that those mapped very nicely in a predictable way across those groupings. So the non-adopter states, the states that did not adopt Common Core, they're resisting those reforms. They're not changing, whereas the states that were strong implementers um, are embracing those reforms. Now, when I looked at NAEP scores, uh, basically what I found is very little difference between the three groups. I looked over a six-year period from 2009 to 2015, and Really, there was no more than one scale score point difference in the change of these groups, whether you're looking at fourth grade uh, math or fourth grade reading or eighth grade math or eighth grade reading. And the bottom line here is the implementation of Common Core appears to have had very little impact on student achievement. That, that, that's essentially what it looks like from these data. If you, if you, if you try to draw some sort of causal connection here, which I'd urge people not to do, but um, these are associations alone. But the, the non-adopting states of Common Core, really their NAEP scores over six, this year's six-year period, hasn't they, their scores have not changed very much compared to the states that are uh, really trying to implement Common Core. So uh, in, the, in these findings, do you think there is uh, good news for Common Core State Standard supporters? Is there good news for opponents? It's, it's a mixed uh, bag. It's, uh, you know, I'll try to give you two different stories. The good news for Common Core is that Common Core, the 2015 NAEP scores were pretty bad. Um, in, in some areas, we saw declines that we've never seen before. You can imagine NAEP opponents, uh, how they explained this. They, they blame Common Core. I think that blame is unfair. Because what my analysis shows is that 
this this kind of stagnation or even decline that we're seeing in NAEP scores, first of all, it's been going on for, say, six years. We've basically either had flat or declining scores in most of these areas. And it affects both states that have adopted Common Core and states that have not. So uh, there's very little evidence here that Common Core should be blamed. It looks like there's something much larger than standards that's going on, especially in eighth grade math where we've had a decline in scores. This looks uh, larger than Common Core. There's something else that, that's influencing these scores, but it's doubtful that it's Common Core. Um, the, so that's the good news for Common Core. They shouldn't be blamed. The bad news for Common Core is here we are now several years into this project and we just don't see a big impact on our national achievement. So while, while it's wrong to blame Common Core for, for NAEP scores, and it's also wrong to attribute, uh, you know, if scores were skyrocketing in the other direction, they were headed up in a dramatic way, we couldn't say Common Core was responsible for that either. But we're not seeing really much of any change in our test scores. So that's really the bad news for Common Core. All right, let's take a quick break here to meet Constanza Stelzenmiller, a new senior fellow who describes growing up in countries all over the world and why she is reading a collection of essays by the late columnist Christopher Hitchens. My name is Constanza Stelzenmiller, and I am the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow, quite a mouthful, at the Center for the U.S. and Europe at Brookings. I am um, a German, and I was born in Bonn, but my dad was in the German Foreign Service. So I grew up in a lot of different places, except mostly Germany. So I was brought to London as a six-month-old baby. Um, then we were in Germany for five years, but there I went to an English elementary school because I'd started out speaking English. And then we were posted to Washington, so I lived here for four years um, in the 1970s and went to the German school in Potomac. And this was pre-subway, if anybody remembers that. And, uh, and then we were posted to Madrid, um, which is where I finished school. And my younger brother finished school in Mexico. And then we were in India and in France. I like to think that I am privileged in that I get paid um, and can make a living from doing what I enjoy most, uh, which is thinking about current affairs and writing about them. Um, I, I suspect, like many people in, in my field, um, only start thinking properly when I'm putting pen to paper. Uh, in other words, when I'm starting to write, to write about something is when I start unwinding and untangling my thoughts and putting them into a logical sequence. And so in reality, um, I'm fulfilling a need uh, to find out what I think uh, by writing about these issues. And I... I think it's also explained by the way I grew up. I'm deeply interested in how the world works uh, and how politics and particularly foreign policy and security policy works. And of course, um, if you're a German of my age, um, you're keenly aware of uh, your country's history. I'm keenly aware of my country's history. And it's a very special responsibility for the peace of Europe. I am writing a monograph on German foreign and security policy which I'm tentatively calling, or I'll say the working title, because this is clearly not sexy enough, um, is uh, the working title is Germany's Voluntarist Moment. This is one of the rare instances where you see Germans not just reacting to foreign policy, but actually trying to shape it. 
um, at a time when Germany, as uh, heroes probably know, is being looked at as one, almost the most powerful nation in, in Europe and expected to provide a kind of leadership um, for which I think Germany, it's fair to say, wasn't really prepared and is scrambling to provide now with middling results. I'm a big fan of reading generally. So I usually have a number of books in piles around me that are going at the same time. But something that I'm also reading right now and that I find fabulous is the essay collection of Christopher Hitchens, who died uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, a Brit who had made his home in Washington, and who was, as I'm now realizing from reading his essays, and the collection is called Arguably, uh, was a polymath who could write about America, Europe, the rest of the world, about literature, about philosophy, about politics. Um, I uh, met Christopher Hitchens once, um, fortuitously. It was when I was still a journalist. I was in Kabul trying to meet uh, the single woman presidential candidate. This is about 10 years ago. Uh, and there was a continuous stream of people in and out of her office, and I had walked quite a way through a very hot uh, Afghan day to come to her apartment. And I was feeling dehydrated and annoyed. And suddenly this guy w walked in and uh, was sat on the sofa next to me um, and sat down there with the greatest air of confidence in the world. And I looked at him and thought, okay, either this is Christopher Hitchens, whom I have only seen pictures of, or I am so dehydrated that I'm hallucinating. And I thought, I'd better ask, because I'm, if I'm hallucinating, I have a serious problem. And so I said, are you Christopher Hitchens? And he, he said, yes. And I was very relieved that I wasn't hallucinating. And so we ended up having dinner that night in Kabul at a German restaurant. And it was one of the most enjoyable evenings I've ever had. He was a very witty dinner companion. And now that I'm reading his essays, I kind of regret um, never having had the opportunity to pick that encounter up again. Constanza is a guest on one of the first episodes of our new podcast, Intersections. You can subscribe to it now on iTunes. And now back to Tom Lovelace. All right, let's switch to part two of the report, Advanced Placement Achievement. Can you first explain what is tracking? Uh, tracking is the practice. It's a very controversial practice. It's uh, a lot of people call it ability grouping, which is it's a form of ability grouping. But at the secondary level, we usually refer to it as tracking. And it's the assignment of kids to different classes based on their prior achievement or ability. Anyone who's gone to school has been probably to a school that tracks. So it's a matter of if you are a uh, eighth grader and you take a different course, different math course than other kids. Let's say you take algebra and other kids take a general eighth grade math class or other kids take a pre-algebra class. That's tracking. They're going to separate classes with separate teachers, separate textbooks uh, based on their prior achievement. And why is that controversial? It's controversial because uh, the assignment to tracks is correlated with race and class. The main reason for that is uh, test scores are also highly correlated with race and class. So if you walk into a high-track class, you very often see uh, uh, that it's racially disproportionate favoring white students and Asian students. You'll see a higher proportion of whites and Asians than are represented in, in the school as a whole and vice versa. In the low tracks, you may see more kids of color, more, more uh, African-American and Hispanic kids. 
for the most part, if you control for prior achievement, all that disappears. But because of this high correlation of race and class with test scores, you're going to get different assignments of kids to these courses. So on, on an equity basis, uh, the charge has been that tracking, first of all, discriminates in, in, against uh, Hispanics and African Americans and kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And then secondly, there's quite a bit of evidence that kids who are in low tracks just don't get a very good education. Many of those low tracks are dead ends. They don't go anywhere. And um, so it's like a double whammy. So that makes it uh, controversial from an equity standpoint. Can you talk about what uh, findings you have from the data in your report on tracking and AP achievement? I did a what's called a time-lagged analysis. So I used data on tracking in 2009 and looked at AP outcomes in 2013, four years later. So I looked at eighth grade tracking in 2009 and asked the question, were the practices of various states in 2009 with eighth graders related at all, correlated at all, with AP outcomes four years later in 2013 when these kids would be graduating from high school? So we have AP outcomes that are uh, expressed in relation to the percentage of kids graduating from high school, uh, like what percentage of each state, of each state's graduating class has taken an AP class or taken an AP test. So I looked at that. We also have data on the percentage of kids who score, uh, AP is scored on a one through five basis with three, four, and five being the highest scores. And many colleges are award college credit if you score three, four, or five. So I looked at the percentage of kids who scored uh, three, four, or five out of the AP test takers in the state. The research question was, is there any relationship between these two things? Does it look like states that do more tracking in eighth grade? Do they have more kids participating in AP when they graduate from high school? And also, do they have higher scores? And I found no relationship uh, at all between tracking and participation in AP. So it's not as if tracking in eighth grade uh, adds to the selectivity or somehow sorts kids or sifts kids out of participating in AP. That doesn't, there's no evidence that's going on. But I found a strong relationship between tracking in eighth grade and then four years later, the percentage of, of kids, of AP test takers who score three or above. This is not, again, this is not a causal study either, but I then present a, this pipeline hypothesis that what could be going on here is that high achievement does, doesn't begin in high school. Uh, it needs to be nurtured. It needs to be identified. And so very bright kids, especially, and now here's where the whole equity argument essentially gets turned on its head. If we've abolished tracking in schools with lots of disadvantaged kids, with lots of African-Americans, with lots of Hispanics, and tracking benefits someone, then those kids can't receive that benefit. And what not just this study suggests, but other studies have also suggested, is that tracking does benefit high-achieving kids. So um, this pipeline, to again adopt this pipeline hypothesis, we really want to take a hard look at how can we provide opportunities for eighth graders 
And it may involve tracking. It may involve giving them tougher math courses, even though everybody's not taking those tougher math courses. It may involve giving them tougher English language arts courses, even though everyone's not taking them. But how can we provide opportunities for eighth graders to help put them on the track towards completing these really hard classes once they get to be 11th and 12th graders? Let's move on very briefly to the third section of the report, and that is on uh, principals and teacher leadership. And you have a lot of data comparing across countries that's very interesting and, and kind of um, maybe goes against the conventional conventional wisdom of what people think about um, the way different countries such as Finland, South Korea, even the United States deal with principals and their teachers. Can you just briefly describe some of your chief findings in this section? Yeah, I think the main finding, I did look at international data, so I looked at Tim's data. And I think the main finding actually is just a very descriptive one. And that is um, when we look at the principal activities that Tim's measures, and this is through uh, surveys of principals, school principals around the world. So we have a lot of different countries, about 60 countries participate in Tim's. And the Tim's is the Trends in International Math and Science Study, right? That's right. Right. First given in 1995 and is given um, basically every four years uh, since then. Um, the principal surveys, unfortunately, they change these surveys a lot. So what I do in the report is first I report the most recent data from Tim's uh, 2011. And then I did locate some time periods when the same survey was given so I could look at changes over time. And then there were two four-year periods where I could uh, look at that. But let me just talk about the descriptive data in, in 2011 because I think it's interesting. The It turns out there's tremendous, as, as you'd expect, there's tremendous variation around the world in terms of how principals conduct their jobs as instructional leaders. One of the activities that's listed in the, in the 2011 survey is whether or not – they promote the school's educational vision or goals. Now, most principals do that uh, around the world, over 50%. Along with, uh, they were asked about developing the school's curricular and educational goals, so a little more specific. They tend to do that as well. And then the third activity, monitoring teachers' implementation of the school's educational goals. They tend to do that too. So there, you see the role of principals has been fairly uh, institutionalized internationally as a goal setter, a goal monitor uh, at the school. However, where they differ is on advising teachers – when teachers have a problem in the classroom with instruction, you know, how do I – gee, my kids aren't understanding fractions. How should I teach that? A lot of principals uh, don't do much of that. And oddly enough, they don't do it in some of the highest scoring countries in the world. So you see a lot of variation. Uh, in Finland, for example, only 16 percent um, – and the Tim's metrics are even are hard to explain on a podcast. But – the 16 percent does not mean 16 percent of principals. It means 16 percent of students had a principal who said they spent a lot of time on that particular activity. And so Finland registers quite low on, on that. They do not have principals. And we, we actually know this from ethnographic studies of Finland and just studies where people have gone and visited Finland, they've reported the same thing. The principals are not real hands-on instructional leaders. Teachers have a lot of autonomy there. Um, the same thing is true in Hong Kong. They're, they're you know, very uh, hands-off when it comes to instructional leadership. 
and countries like uh, Norway, same thing. But uh, same thing in Japan too. But another country that's high achieving, Korea, uh, always scores the top of tens. Tens has very activist principles in this regard. So in in Korea, seventy two percent is their number on this metric of 72% of, of students have principals who say they spend a lot of time on, the, on that. This is at fourth grade. This is at elementary. Um, the United States scores about a little bit above the world average at fourth grade on these uh, activities. So uh, U.S. principals look in terms of the world and the activism, if you will, of principals as instructional leaders. The U.S. looks Basically average, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit above average. Well, Tom, before I let you go, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, this is the fifteenth Brown Center report on American education that you have authored. Uh, I wonder if you could take a moment to reflect on um, your role in this work and in this body of research generally. Yeah, you know, first of all, it's a project I love doing, and I just found out I'm funded for next year, so that's great. Uh, and I intend for 2017 to be the last one that I authored. Uh, I think it's had a nice run. Um, the the one thing about it I think that makes it unique, and that I've tried to do with it to make it unique, is almost all of the data. First of all, the questions are empirical that are being asked. It's not a, a it's not a blog post or a, an op ed. Um, these are studies where a question is asked, and then data are analyzed uh, to answer the question. The other thing about the data, though, um, is that almost all the data in the Brown Center reports, with maybe one exception several years ago, almost all the data are public and readily available. So, you know, if somebody doesn't trust my analysis or wants to do it themselves or maybe ask a different question, they can actually access the data, get the data themselves. They can run it themselves and see what they uh, come up with. So hopefully what it does is also encourage people uh, in a fairly unsophisticated way. You don't have, a, have to have a PhD in statistics or even know very advanced statistics to look at means and standard deviations. Um, encourage people to do some of their own research on questions they may have because there's a, right now we're in a data-rich world. Uh, when the Brown Center report began, that wasn't true. So that's one thing that's changed. Well, Tom, thank you again for your time today. It's been nice to talk to you. Thank you. You can find the 2016 Brown Center Report on American Education and all the previous editions on our website at brookings.edu. To help mark Brookings' centenary, I've been putting out some special episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria podcast that celebrate the institution's history and its people. I interviewed the two board co-chairs, John L. Thornton and David Rubenstein, and also talked with the current and a past president of Brookings, Strobe Talbot and Bruce McClary. To finish up the series, I'm presenting the voices of some Brookings scholars reflecting on this institution and their research as it turns 100. What are the characteristics of a Brookings scholar? In a podcast episode on How to Measure Happiness that I taped with Carol Graham a couple of years ago, she explained it pretty well. Carol is the Leo Pesvalsky Senior Fellow. And Leo Pesvalsky was a notable scholar at Brookings between 1922 and 1953. Leo Pesvalsky was an amazing guy who nobody really knows about. He was the first uh, director of international studies at Brookings, which was kind of why I have his title. But more, uh, more importantly, he was very involved from the State Department in setting up the United Nations. He was a sort of quintessential Brookings-type 
scholar. He was an economist, but he worked on broader issues of you know international political development. Um, he was from Ukraine, but emigrated to the United States and became an active participant in setting up both Brookings and uh, also working at State Department, setting up the UN. And he had work that crossed disciplines, but also focused on important policy questions. So if we were to think about what Brookings scholars do, he's certainly a good model for us to follow. For much of our first century, the names of scholars like Lewis Merriam, Edwin Norse, Arthur Oaken, and Joe Peckman populated the annals of Brookings scholarship. Oaken, in fact, is the author of the best-selling book in Brookings history, Equality and Efficiency, The Big Trade-Off. You can learn more about their contributions on our history timeline at brookings.edu slash centuryofideas. In recent times, I've had the privilege of talking with over 80 scholars on this podcast, including Alice Rivlin, Amy Liu, and E.J. Dion. Here they are describing some of their most important work, starting with senior fellow Alice Rivlin, founding director of the Congressional Budget Office. I think over the years, the most important work I've done was um, in, in two pieces. A book that I wrote called Systematic Thinking for Social Action that came out in 1972 and was recently reissued by uh, Brookings. Uh, was about uh, systematically analyzing uh, public programs. It became sort of a Bible for the public policy schools that were then forming and was widely used in classrooms. I joined uh, Charles Schultz and others in bringing out the series of books called Setting National Priorities that appeared uh, in the 1970s and became a model for the kind of research that the Congressional Budget Office uh, did uh, and is still uh, doing uh, on uh, issues that involve the federal budget, the effectiveness of federal programs, tax uh, changes, and uh, other things that the uh, Congressional Budget Office is now uh, the uh, prime uh, analyzer of. Here's Amy Liu, Vice President and Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program. I've been at Brookings now for 20 years. And what makes me really excited about coming to work every day is the people, the ideas, and the ability to make a difference. But on a personal level, um, I'm really proud of the work I did in New Orleans uh, with the New Orleans Index. And there's a couple reasons for that in terms of its importance. First, it provided real-time information and data on the pace and quality of the recovery just weeks after the biggest uh, natural disaster in U.S. history on a major uh, city. This index has now become a model for how other cities and metropolitan areas and states should prepare for responses in the aftermath of future catastrophes. And in New Orleans in particular, it was a, a real live decision-making tool for federal agencies, for the governor, for the mayors, for the local community organizations and the residents, and for philanthropy. And finally, senior fellow E.J. Dion. project I did uh, with uh, Melissa Rogers, it came out right after the 2008 campaign on how the new president, it turned out it was Barack Obama, uh, should restructure President Bush's faith-based initiative. And Melissa and I had a lot of very concrete ideas uh, both of us thought that the work of the faith-based groups in the country was very important, that the issue had gotten highly politicized 
under President Bush, uh, some of it the administration's fault, some of it uh, other factors, and that a lot of those reforms got adopted. Indeed, Melissa herself eventually came to head up uh, President Obama's faith-based office. But I think the ideas we put out there and the debate we helped promote with that uh, was genuinely useful and I think had a real impact on policy. Our scholars also speak highly of the role Brookings plays in this polarized political environment. Here are senior fellows Stuart Butler, Bob Kagan, and Elaine Kmark building on this theme. I think in the current environment, Brookings' role is really to transcend the partisan uh, divide on, on issues and on policymaking, uh, because we have such a broad-based uh, group of scholars here. We're independent, and we can look for solutions that really uh, cross the spectrum. I think that's one of the most important roles of Brookings. We're in a time of um, extreme political polarization, as, uh, as everyone's commented on. We've got some sort of wild things happening in our political system. I think uh, Brookings' great contribution is to sort of uh, leave open a space for sort of reasoned discussion, uh, reasoned argument. There are many different points of view here at Brookings, uh, but everyone gets to air their view, uh, discuss uh, with others, disagree. Um, but the, the overall tone is one of civility and respect for diverse opinions. I think that's something that, you know, we could use more of in Washington and the American political system in general. So I think it's a real contribution uh, that Brookings makes in that regard. I think the second century is even more exciting than the first one, mostly because the governmental problems are so much more complicated than they were in the first century of Brookings' existence. Um, whether it's dealing with cybersecurity, whether it's dealing with the increased needs of the government for high-level expertise, um, the governmental challenges, the public sector challenges, are just so much greater than they ever were before. When you think about it, in Brookings' first century, the government was a government of clerks. Uh, mostly they kept records, pushed papers. In the second century, the government is a government of cybercrime specialists, it's a government of molecular biologists, it's a government of nuclear physics and laser physics experts. It's a very complicated government and with complicated missions. And I think Brookings is well situated to play a very valuable role in the public sector in the next century. If you'd like to learn more about Brookings scholars and our history, visit our centenary timeline at brookings.edu slash centuryofideas. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher. Plus, thanks to Chris Anichi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And remember to go to iTunes to subscribe to Intersections, a new podcast from Brookings, launching on March 30th. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.